0: Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. We always like to start with the Angelus. Uh, Bishop, do you have an intention for today's
1: Angelus? Well, since it's the month of November, a special month where we pray for the faithful departed, why don't we remember all of our beloved dead and the holy souls in purgatory? Okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, And she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
2: Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Bishop Kevin Rhodes, Bishop of Fort Wayne South Bend, starts this episode of Truth and Charity with a discussion and explanation of tomorrow's feast day, the feast of the dedication of the Basilica of St. John Lateran, the first basilica ever built, as well as the original and current Cathedral of the Pope, the Bishop of Rome. Bishop talks about the Basilica's history and architecture, as well as what you'll find in the surrounding area. Then it's on to a reflection on tomorrow's Gospel reading, which shows Jesus overturning tables and casting out money changers as he cleanses the temple, an example of righteous anger. We are also in the middle of Vocation Awareness Week, so Bishop will talk about ways to nurture a possible call to the priesthood or religious life. Listeners submitted questions in this show range from yoga and New Age spirituality to why we don't eat meat on Fridays during Lent. If you would like to submit a question for Bishop Rhodes to answer on a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop.
0: Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. Today we celebrate uh, a unique feast day. It's the Feast of the Dedication of the Lateran Basilica in Rome.
1: Uh, it's actually tomorrow, Kyle. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you home. must not have been at mass <laughs> this morning. So, what is the Lateran Basilica? It's the actually the first basilica in, hmm. ever built in the church. Built by the Emperor Constantine back in the fourth century. And um, there are four major basilicas in Rome, the patriarchal basilicas, we call them. And, of course, everyone's familiar with St. Peter's. Uh There's also St. Paul outside the walls, where St. Paul's tomb is, where he was buried. So it was built over the site of of his tomb, just like St. Peter's Basilica. Was built over the site of of Saint Peter's tomb, and then we have the Basilica of Saint Mary Major, uh, beautiful on the Esquiline Hill in Rome, and um, that was built shortly after the Council of Ephesus that declared Mary as theotokos, uh, Mother of God, uh-huh. and then the fourth major basilica, which as I said is the most ancient of the four, is Saint John Lateran. Because that's the original cathedral of the Pope, of the Bishop of Rome, and it still is. Mm -hmm. St. John Lateran's the Pope's cathedral, the diocesan cathedral. I used to give people, gave a lot of people tours of all four basilicas. I, I say to anyone who's listening, if you ever go on a pilgrimage to Rome, put that at the top of your list. To visit these four basilicas because they are are really beautiful, and it was the first Christian emperor, Constantine, who had actually three of the four built, including the oldest, Saint John Lateran. It wasn't called Saint John Lateran at the beginning; it was called the Church of Our Savior. Hmm. In later centuries, I don't remember, tenth or eleventh century, they gave the title Saint John the Baptist, and then later they added. St. John the Evangelist. So really, when you think of the titular, it's it's still Christ our Savior, but also these two saints with the name John, John the Baptist and John the Evangelist, and apostle. Since I usually to give tours, you may, I could go on and on. Kyle, I don't know yeah. how much you want me to tell you about it, but um, I think a lot of people don't realize because they think that St. Peter's is the Cathedral of Rome, right. uh, and it isn't. You know, like, it's interesting. The Pope always celebrates holy thursday mass for example at saint john lateran Mm -hmm. and the people say well who's lateran and actually (laughs) as i said it's 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 john the baptist and john the apostle lateran that was the name of the family that owned the land it was an old roman patrician family the laterani the laterani so they would always call it the lateran basilica after, you know, the family that owned that land. It was a wealthy, aristocratic family. But also, interestingly, for about a thousand years, the Pope lived at the Lateran, not at the Vatican. Okay. It was only maybe like the 16th century, 15th or 16th century, I forget, when the Pope moved to the Vatican. The papal household, the papal palace was was there and right now that building near the basilica is really like the headquarters of the diocese of rome the chancery kind of like our archbishop knoll center so it's right across the street from the basilica and also the lateran university one of the main pontifical universities in rome is not far away you have the great basilica and then next to it is the baptistry very famous baptistry and it's where because oftentimes in in the early centuries the baptistry where people were baptized was a separate building from the main church it was real close by and um it's an octagonal shape and if you go in there you see all these scenes with about constantine and his conversion and and the baptism of Constantine by the Pope, St. Sylvester I, it's all very interesting. There's another building very close that a lot of pilgrims go to, I, I highly recommend, which has the holy stairs, the Scala Santa. Those are believed to be the stairs that Jesus would have gone up in Pilate's Praetorium mm-hmm. when he was um, condemned to death brought back to Rome by Constantine's mother, St. Helena. But you can only go up on your knees. Uh You've probably heard of that. And uh, I always love to do that. It's not easy because, you know, it's kind of rugged and you're going up on your knees and it's a little painful. And I always used to, to laugh with my friends because there'd be these old ladies, Roman ladies who've been doing that all their lives and they had no problem and we're all struggling and we're yeah. young men, you know, Yeah. <laughs> but their knees were in such good shape from doing that <laughs> all the time. And when you get to the top of the Holy Stairs, there's a chapel that was moved there. It was the all that's left of the old papal palace is the chapel. And they call it the Holy of Holies, and it has a lot of relics and everything and the old mosaics. So that's a very special spot when you get to the top of the stairs where you see where the the popes for a thousand years prayed and that was their private chapel. When you look at the basilica itself, it developed through the centuries, you know, there were fires and an earthquake and you know, so parts of it rebuilt and all that. But there's a variety of styles, you know, of paintings and art architecture a little more eclectic i would say than the other basilicas but what strikes you when you walk in or strikes me it's a t- typical basilica shape you know big center nave with side aisles with columns and then side aisles and then in the front there's the apse and the triumphal arch and the transept but there's these huge statues of the 12 apostles six on each side marble statues mm. um and they're carrying like their, s- the symbols of uh, that they have, like mostly symbols of their martyrdom. Okay. And then the chapel in, or the um, the center where the altar is is a canopy over it, what we call a baldacchino, and that's Gothic, which is very unusual. You know, here you have a basilica Romanesque style building, but a Gothic altar, hmm. and that contains a uh, a table that it is believed that St. Peter and the first Popes celebrated Mass on. Wow. Yeah. And then down below is the tomb of St. of Pope St. Martin I. They have two reliquaries also that are shaped like the heads of Peter and Paul and supposedly have relics of the skulls of Peter and Paul in those reliquaries. So, again, I don't want to get into too much detail. I also recommend anyone who visits the Basilica of St. John Lateran to visit the cloister next to it it's a courtyard and it really really is beautiful very very old and it's um where the the priests and the monks would pray out in the courtyard you can go so you can go back and see that it has some mosaics i mean you could spend hours and hours Mm -hmm. uh, just walking around between the basilica itself and the baptistry, the Scala Sancta, the holy stairs, you know, the cloister. The cloister goes back to the 13th century and it has just beautifully uh, decorated columns and with jewel-like mosaics and um, really need to see. There's another cloister, by the way, at St. Paul's outside the walls that's also very famous and very beautiful. Why a feast day for a building? Well, it's interesting we do celebrate dedication of churches you know when i when there's a new church we have a dedication It used to be called the consecration and it's a very beautiful ceremony but then we remember the day of the dedication every year Uh in a in for example here in our diocese we celebrate the dedication of the cathedral of the immaculate conception in fort wayne not only in the cathedral every year but also in all the parishes of the diocese. Hmm. And it's just very symbolic importance to celebrate the unity of the church around the bishop and, of course, all the symbolism of the church as uh, symbolizing you know the living stones that we are, of the body of Christ, of the new temple, which is Christ himself. So I think when we celebrate the dedication of the Basilica of St. John Lateran, we're remembering the pope in a special way because it's his cathedral Uh uh-huh what's the difference between a basilica and a cathedral well cathedral is the seat of a diocese it's Mm -hmm. what you know comes from the latin and greek word cathedra so it has the chair of the bishop and the chair symbolizes the bishop's authority Mm -hmm. uh, especially his his uh, teaching authority but also that he's the principal priest of the diocese. So we get the word cathedral. So a diocese has a cathedral, it's the bishop's church, it has the bishop's cathedral, it's kind of the mother church of the diocese. So that's what a cathedral is. A basilica is a church that has received that special honorary title because of some important reason. Perhaps it's because it houses the body of a saint or it's a church that has real special historical significance, or because of its beauty of Mm -hmm. architecture and art. So there's various criteria, and if, for example, we wanted a, a bishop could petition the Vatican to have a particular church designated as a basilica, we had two basilicas, and they're called minor basilicas. The only major basilicas are the four that I mentioned, the patriarchal basilicas oh, okay. in Rome. All the others are minor basilicas. And, of course, we have a basilica here in our diocese, mm-hmm. the Basilica of the Sacred Heart at the University of Notre Dame. And you walk in, you could see why it'd be named a basilica. It's so beautiful. Yeah. But also, it has historic significance and uh, many relics, etc.
0: Well, one of the things that we see in tomorrow's gospel is this story of Jesus coming into the temple and they're selling things in the temple and he kind of gets upset with that, overturns their tables and drives them out. It's a side of Jesus that we don't see very often, this kind of, I don't know if you'd say angry, but upset, maybe disappointed Jesus. Right. Right what what is the moral of this story and, and how are we to interpret this as we deal with our own
1: anger or being upset with things Nah, no, good question you know when you think about it what was happening there the temple back actually it was a whole area it's like 35 acres the whole temple area so this was probably taking place in what they called the court of the gentiles so people needed to buy animals because part of the temple worship was the sacrifice of animals. Uh Thing is, it was probably under Caiaphas, although we're not sure, the high priest at the time, who brought them into the temple area. Mm -hmm. It probably wasn't before. It wouldn't be original. It would have been outside. So to have this happening, or they're selling these animals, and then also doing the money exchange, it was like turning what was a sacred place, a place of prayer, into a market, and that's what Jesus said, you've turned my father's house into a marketplace. Uh The reason there was money changing is people were, you know, they were there for the Passover, so you had people from all these different nations, so the currency that they would use would have, like, the emperor on it or Uh pagan things. You couldn't pay the temple tax with that kind of money or coins, so you had to change it so you had these money changers there. Jesus was clearly upset because, I mean, it says, you know, he made a whip out of cords. I mean, yeah. this wasn't – now, he wasn't using that against the people, by the way. You yeah. know, we shouldn't imagine that he's whipping people. No, those kinds of cords would be used to drive animals, you know, to uh-huh. coax animals to move, etc. So that's what Jesus was ju- doing. Jesus wasn't attacking the people. He was trying to move the animals out of the – holy area and, and he did overturn tables and mm-hmm. the coins spilled in the ground so yeah so there he was clearly upset i think it's because you know what was the temple it was he said this is my father's house now that's a big claim i mean you've made my father's house i mean he's it's a claim of his divinity he's speaking as the son of god that's a really important thing there and here it's become a place of merchandise and when you read the old testament i mean what was the temple? It was uh, the place of God's special presence, a place where Josh offered worship and sacrifice to God. It was a place that was to be holy and not a commercialized kind of place. I think we see Jesus' justified anger, I guess we could say, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's very significant in the Gospel. His disciples, seeing this, were probably shocked, but it made them think of a sentence from the Old Testament that they were familiar with because they prayed the Psalms all the time. Uh And do you know what that is, Kyle? Zeal for your house will consume me. Very good, I always always like to make sure you're, very good, Psalm 69. And uh, (laughs) it's interesting that the disciples recalled that Psalm. Zeal for your house will consume me. And you might say, well, what are they talking about? Well, in the psalm. I actually do want to know that. Oh, okay. Because I don't know. It really its the psalmist is speaking of being persecuted because of his commitment to God, his zeal for the temple. When you think about Jesus' persecution, you know, Jesus is shortly going to be put to death for his, I guess you could say, his commitment to God the Father, mm-hmm. he's doing his Father's will. So the disciples saw what Jesus was doing there, overturning the tables and casting the money changers and that out of the temple. It's showing his zeal for his, his Father's house, his commitment to his Father. And that really leads to his death. This caused great upsetment uh, among the religious leaders. Mm-hmm do you get angry very often not 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 very often I would not say I'm prone to anger I think I'm pretty patient I mean every now and then but the important thing I think is we can't let it become sinful you know Uh I mean anger is an emotion and it could be morally neutral but if we get out of control you know if we don't have the self-control with it Mm -hmm. it can become a very serious sin or if it's connected to hatred that's even worse but no, I think there's there's righteous angry, anger. I mean, we should be angry about evil, mm-hmm. you know. There is an interesting thing. You mentioned the psalm, Psalm 69, mm-hmm. um, but there's another passage of the Old Testament that we can think of when we reflect on this scene of the cleansing of the temple. You know, in Zechariah, the prophet, in chapter 14 of Zechariah, he says, no longer will there be merchants in the house of the Lord of hosts hmm. on, that, on that day, the day of the Lord. Yeah, I think this is a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. No longer will there be merchants in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So now we have the Messiah had come. It was the day of the Lord. He brought the salvation that the people were expecting that Zechariah foretold. So I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. We see these Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in the New Testament, and this is one of them. All right. Well, we are also in the middle of Vocation
0: Awareness Week. So when we come back, we'll talk about that right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. Today we are in the middle of... National Vocation Awareness Week, which is from November 5th through 11th. Uh, The USCCB website, usccb.org, has some information about it. Uh, Also, you can check out vocationawarenessweek.com. What are some of the goals either from the USCCB or maybe you personally would have
1: for National Vocation Awareness Week? Well, I think the word awareness is key here. It's to kind of bring to the fore, remind people about the importance of the vocation of the priesthood and diaconate and consecrated life in the life of the church. So it's it's an opportunity to promote the vocations, to be mindful that we need to continually be praying for vocations. Mm-hmm. So if you look at that USCCB website, there's various prayers. I know some parishes have a holy hour for vocations, which I really encourage. I think the more parishes we have, that are celebrating a holy hour weekly or monthly even for vocations it's really really strong we have that holy hour every month for vocations at the St Theodore Gerring chapel next to the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception and mm-hmm. a lot of people come for that and they pray the rosary and I, I really um think that's a wonderful thing but also during the national vocation awareness week it's opportunity for perhaps the priests and deacons to preach about vocations Mm -hmm. on that Sunday. There's also, um, I think there's a, if I saw it on the USCCB website, a little message from Pope Francis. Uh, Yeah, That's good to see. Yeah, it's it's
0: a very short video message from Pope Francis. Uh, Do you have any tips for parents on how we can teach our children to remain open to priesthood and religious life?
1: I think the most important thing is is to help children to understand that God does have a plan for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and from early on to kind of – and, you know, you develop a child – help a child in their prayer life and say, you know, try to discover what does God want you to do. And, you know, you look at your talents. and But don't exclude anything. Every Catholic boy should – Consider that this is a possibility Mm -hmm. and not rule it out, just like every Catholic girl regarding consecrated religious life. And I think that's really important. And then it's kind of a beautiful thing with children then as they grow into adolescence, their teenage years, to kind of keep that to the fore. And if they have that, then they're thinking about it and praying about it. There's some young people who never have considered it, yeah, and that's not a good thing. It's really parents' responsibility because parents need to will what God wills for their children, not pushing them into anything because that's not good that's not right either. Mm-hmm. that's not healthy, and it's not respecting that that dialogue, that intimate dialogue of vocation between God and the individual, but I think what parents have to or should be doing is is helping to see that this is a possibility
0: what about the person that's discerning and they might find themselves more confused the more they ask questions they're not getting answers and they don't know what to do would you suggest a spiritual director
1: yeah a spiritual director i think a retreat's a good thing i think there shouldn't be anxiety about it i think people have to be patient Mm -hmm. as god reveals his will especially in prayer It may not happen overnight, but there's also something on the other extreme is this fear of making a definitive commitment. Mm -hmm. We see that regarding marriage nowadays, too. And that, I think, is an increasing problem. And I don't know. I mean, the young adults I speak to, I think some of it's fear, um, especially if they've come from backgrounds where... They've seen hurt and commitments that have been broken. Mm -hmm. I think that's one aspect of it. You know, a definitive choice when you say yes to marriage or yes to priesthood or yes to consecrated life, there's a corresponding no. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, you're excluding some possibilities. And I think nowadays that can be difficult for young people. So on the one hand, I'm saying not to have too much anxiety, God will speak. But then, there does come a time of decision. Uh And I guess I'd say what Pope John Paul used to say a lot, don't be afraid. Mm -hmm. What are you looking for in a seminarian? Well, it's a great question, Kyle. Number one is I want healthy, mature young men Mm -hmm. that have good character, that are well-balanced, and that are real disciples of Christ whose motives are pure, motive being to give of oneself in service. But I want young men who can relate well with people, mm-hmm. obviously who, are, who believe in the teachings of the church and who love others and really care about others. So we have to look at all those human and spiritual things. But I think the fundamental thing is a healthy, mature young man who also is a genuine disciple of Jesus. It's as simple as that. Is part of the discernment process
0: kind of jumping into either uh, exploring the priesthood or the religious life before you know for sure to go and visit a convent or talk to the vocations director long before you're ever positive that this is what oh, God's yeah. calling you to.
1: I think it's good. Yeah, join a discernment group even if you're completely unsure. Now, you have to have more than that if you're going to apply. Right. And I'm not saying you have to have absolute assurance, mm-hmm. but you have should have a pretty strong idea that God is calling you to be a priest before you go to the seminary, uh-huh. even if it's not, you know, total certitude yet. But I think as far as you're talking about discernment groups or just individual Visits to seminaries or religious houses. I I encourage that for all young people. I know in some of our Catholic high schools they do those kinds of visits, which is a great thing.
0: Is the call to the priesthood or the religious life a higher calling
1: than the married life? That's a theologically debated question because there are statements in church documents which speak of that in that language. But one has to be careful and some theologians have pointed this out, that um, you can say that objectively, that's true, Mm -hmm. but on a subjective level, it's not higher in the sense if you're not called to it. Sure. So you just have to be careful with language sometimes. I mean, I think it's probably better to, to look at the uniqueness of these vocations and their complementarity rather than trying to make, comparisons as if one is better than the other they're both states in life that are ordered to our salvation Mm -hmm. all right well again remind
0: people to to pray for vocations especially this week and you can also check out discernpriesthood.com which is our diocesan uh, vocations website just and if you have any questions you can ask it by going to redeemer radio.com slash ask bishop you can call or text the holy cross college text line at 260-436-9598 and coming up we'll ask questions submitted by listeners right here on truth and charity with bishop rhodes brought to you in part by notre dame federal credit union Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here asking questions that you've submitted either on our website or through the Holy Cross College text line. And our first question comes from Cecilia Hess from St. Patrick's in South Bend. Says, Thanks for taking my question. I was wondering how, logistically, the consecration of the host works in the case of perpetual adoration. How often is a new host consecrated, as I'm sure it's not the same one week and week after week? And again, assuming they are replaced. What happens with the old
1: ones god bless you for the great work you do well thank oh thank you very much cecilia good to hear from you i'll answer the last part of your question uh what happens with the old hosts? they have to be consumed so when a host that was in the monstrance or in the lunette the luna is taken out and replaced by another host the priest breaks it and puts it in the ciborium to be consumed within the context of a mass usually yes yes usually i mean it can also be brought to the sick you know Mm -hmm. um, as the other hosts that remain after mass Uh, so that's that's answering that part Um, the other part of the question is how often are the hosts that are used in adoration changed i would say at least once a month because you don't want it to become In any way corrupted, you know, which is actually very rare that that would happen. It would probably take a lot more than a month, probably many months. But to be on the safe side, we say at least once a month. I think some places they may do it weekly. They may change it or biweekly. One of the norms of the church when we have some chapels, for example, the church requires that if you have a let's say we have places in the diocese that aren't parish churches, but where the blessed sacrament is reserved. Redeemer radio, for example. Yeah, exactly. We have chapels in a couple of our women's care centers, too. But according to the church, you have to have masses at least twice a month in those chapels. Now why is the church insisting on that? Well, if they reserve the blessed sacrament, one of the reasons is you want to make sure that the blessed sacrament is renewed Mm -hmm. that the old hosts are consumed okay
0: another question submitted is what are your thoughts on the teaching of tai chi yoga centering prayer and other new age spiritual meditations being taught in catholic circles
1: wow i could go on and on about this because you see it in certain places some retreat centers etc and the vatican has put out things about borrowing forms of meditation etc from Eastern religions mm-hmm. we have to be extremely careful and cautious because if you're talking about maybe some external elements like physical posture that's involved in some of these things that's probably harmless but some of the uh, elements of Eastern meditation can be contrary to our faith so we have to be really careful the philosophy behind it christian prayer is different i mean christian prayer is centered on christ Mm -hmm. the mediator between god and man prayer is the the lifting up of our minds and hearts to god in prayer we we stand before the mystery of the most holy trinity these other forms of prayer are not trinitarian They're not Christ-centered. Oftentimes, they are very much self-centered, trying to arrive, for example, at a particular state of, of consciousness. Now, some of them, I think people use yoga, for example, oftentimes just for relaxation. There's nothing to do with the religious beliefs of Hinduism that are behind yoga. But there are elements, if it's looked upon, if someone is looking at it as like a a religious or philosophical system, that's problematic because Mm -hmm. yoga contains elements that are incompatible with Christianity. There's the problem of monism. I don't know if, you know, that's, monism's the view that ultimately everything is one. All reality is one. All reality is immersed in this impersonal sea of the divine, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not compatible with Christianity. God always remains the transcendent other. The creature, us, we're creatures. We remain creatures. Talk about our union with God, but that doesn't mean we lose our personal identity and become part of this divine consciousness or whatever. We speak of a union of love with God. We don't speak of a union of identity. So if you get into some of the that those Hindu concepts that are part of yoga—that's really dangerous, I think—and some of these other things. People I know—well, I don't know many people who practice <laughs> yoga—but I, I think some of them—they're not—they're—they use some breathing techniques or whatever, um, maybe different stretches and postures as a way of you know relaxation or whatever. So I think we have to be just careful we have to be cautious i think is what i want to say and there's different things about zen buddhism tai chi which has grown in popularity all these are imports from these eastern religions that have elements that are contrary to christianity and i don't know why people are going there when we have such a rich traditions of spirituality in the church you know i mean when we talk about meditation, for example, and different methods of, of meditation, well, what's more beautiful than meditating on Christ mm-hmm. and the mysteries of Christ's life, contemplation of Christ? Go to Eucharistic adoration. Read the scriptures and meditate upon them. Pray the rosary. I mean, rosary has, I mean, you can think about it, that repetition. You see that in some of these other religions where they have repetitious so you see that in common Mm -hmm. but there's a different philosophy behind it the rosary is rooted in the gospel and what do we meditate on the mysteries of christ Mm -hmm. we're not just meditating on the self there's a lot more there's if someone if any of the listeners they can look up the the document from the congregation for the doctrine of the faith i don't remember the year it came out i want to say maybe 15 years ago it has to do about these with these new age movements okay
0: Somebody, I think, is planning ahead a little bit here, asked, why don't we eat meats on Friday
1: in Lent? Uh, very simple. It's a communal penance that we do. It used to be that Catholics, all Catholics, abstained from eating meat on every Friday of Lent. I mean, of, of the year. Now it's only during Lent. It's just a little penance, a little act of penance that we do together, a little sacrifice. Why meat? Because I think this goes back when, you know, meat was considered the best kind of food. And even today, it's more expensive than usually than rice or whatever. Sure. So, it's giving up something that's enjoyable, that people enjoy. It's a food that's a little richer.
0: All right. Well, if you have questions, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text us on the Holy Cross College text line at 260 436 9598, and more of your questions are coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here, asking questions that you've submitted either on our website or through our text line. And a listener submitted this question How should we respond to people who concede that human life begins at conception, but think the baby in the womb still
1: has no rights? Wow. It's almost like saying that's a hard thing. I mean, if someone has that idea, they're saying then that all human life doesn't have value and that murder is okay in certain situations. I Mm -hmm. mean, where do they draw the line? I mean, I don't know. I, I think I would just try to, if I was talking to someone who had that view... It's almost trying to convince them of the moral truth of the sacredness of human life, because others think abortion is okay because they don't think it's human life. Right. You're saying this is a person who, who knows it's human life. Of course, biology shows it's human life. It can't. Mm-hmm. It's not anything else. But they still think it's okay to kill it. I would say up until when, and mm-hmm. what makes it less. Or more valuable at the moment of birth. I mean, there are philosophers, for example, who, who will go even further and say that in those first couple years of life, it doesn't have the same value as later in life. Mm-hmm. That's scary, too, because that then legitimizes, in their minds, infanticide. Mm-hmm. And then you could say, well, then that also would say okay well what why and they would say well they don't have the capacity for whatever they don't maybe have the capacity for rational discourse or whatever but then that would also apply to the disabled Mm -hmm. um so all this is a slippery slope but yeah i mean that's truly such a philosophical even philosophically even prescinding from revelation and the fact that every human being is created in the image and likeness of God. I would try to point that out to the person too, but it may be an unbeliever and they're not gonna accept a religious argument. I would try to say, okay, how do you, then then when does a human being have value and how are you determining value, you know? It's scary, really. I think this is a good question. Is
0: there an age limit on servers?
1: No. We don't have any, um, nothing in canon law about age of servers. Minimum or maximum? No. I think we kind of, I don't think the diocese has any norms. I think we leave it up to the parishes. I mean, definitely they should have First Communion. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you shouldn't be serving Mass unless you first had First Communion, I would think. Okay.
0: And I'm curious on your thoughts on this next question. Is it appropriate to hang a rosary on your car's rearview mirror? I have one on mine, but I'm having second thoughts. I
1: don't have any problem with that. I mean, I I think it's a sacramental. It's kind of a a reminder. Uh You know, we'd put... Uh, I don't know little images I don't know if any of the people used to have these little patches of the sacred heart that we'd put in the fr- on our oh, yeah. dashboard and yeah. things like that when I've been in Latin American co- countries I've seen all, a lot of people with little statues or or stickers or little things hanging of our lady of Guadalupe uh-huh. I think it's I think it's fine I think it reminds us of our lady reminds us of our lord I don't think it's disrespectful to hang the rosary I mean you could take it down and pray it it's there yeah when you're driving you yeah. know in a traffic jam or something yeah right and I, I wonder why a person would question that maybe they're thinking it's a little it's just using the rosary as a decoration i guess it would depend on why one would hang it there but i think most would hang it there as as a reminder especially if it's something that's been blessed
0: would this be any different from somebody who wants to wear a rosary around their neck kind of like like a necklace
1: Yeah. I mean I I've had that question before too. I think it's very similar. It depends on what one's intention is. Yeah. If one's just doing it as a article of like jewelry, I don't think that's right. But if one's doing it like one's wearing a medal, then I don't have a problem with it. One wears a medal as a a blessed object that um reminds one to pray. How many rosaries do you think you have? Oh my goodness. i have so many rosaries <laughs> i don't know do you have a favorite like one that you generally have with you yeah, or the w- one well i don't carry around because i don't want to lose it one that saint john paul gave me really i uh I, I treasure that yeah and another one that i actually had given to my mother i had it in her hands when she, and when she was in her laying in the casket mm-hmm. But then before they closed the casket, I took the rosary and put another one in her hand so that I would be able to keep that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So St. Pope John Paul didn't just bless a rosary for you. He gave you he a rosary. He handed it to me, yeah.
1: What was the circumstance? I had served mass for him. Yeah. Was that a, a regular thing that he would give his... He would, yeah. That was pretty common. He would give the rosary to servers. What's it After made of? It's simple. It's the same rosary that, he gives, that they will give out. I don't know what it's made of. It's, uh, it's not plastic, but it's not an expensive rosary.
0: Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop Rose, for joining us and answering some of our questions. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you.
1: And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle.
2: Join us next Wednesday at noon for an all-new episode of Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes with a special Encore presentation on Saturday at 11 a.m. Our next episode will cover topics like the life of soon-to-be-blessed Solanus Casey, as well as his connection to Huntington, his struggles in seminary, and what we can learn from his life today. Then it's on to the Catechism of the Catholic Church as we celebrate its 25th anniversary, and a discussion of the Bible, the best ways to read it and pray with it. The show will wrap up with Bishop Rhodes answering questions submitted by listeners. If you have a question, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop and submit it there. You can also download the Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet to send in a question. And while you're there, check out previous episodes of Truth in Charity anytime, anywhere. Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.